Thank you, Amy. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. What's the rest of it? He washed it white as snow. Amen. And that is the gospel, that you can be saved from the sin previously that had committed you to the grave and to death. Great gospel news. Anyway, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker, and I'd like you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have little ones up through grade 4, you'd like them in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. You're welcome to keep them with you, though, if you'd like. We love kids. We have lots of them, and so keep them up here if you'd like in the, to have them in the service. Following this morning's service, we have our fourth Sunday afternoon, Acts 2.46. They continue together, breaking bread and in fellowship and in the teaching of the Word, and this is our fellowship dinner that follows this service. If you didn't come prepared by bringing a carry-in dinner, it's okay. There'll be enough. Come and enjoy the fellowship with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. God's plan for a healthy church is study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. If you're new this morning and you haven't been here for this study, uh, don't despair. The Lord is very good about taking whatever we read from the Word and putting it to work in our hearts. So wherever we are in the study, you will come away blessed if you're ready to open the Word. That's the whole point of the previous part of the service is not so we can go through some certain checklist to make sure we sing and make sure we give and all that. But we do what the church has been doing for 2,000 years, which is uh, come before the Lord humbly in prayer. We come before him with exaltation, recognizing who he is and, and adoring him and glorifying him, uh, saying right things about him, and then giving, which is part of uh, the recognition worship that he has given all things to us. And so uh, our desire now is to go to the Lord in the word and have him teach us and instruct us that we might be benefited and grow. And so uh, in that same breath, I would like to encourage you, be in the Word each day. That is the Lord's design for you to be uh, purified by the Word, to hold the Holy Standard up before you, to be encouraged by the Word. Uh, we have a trifold back in the back. You can find it on the guest, uh, at the guest table. It can help you or in your tablet. You can go on a daily Bible reading calendar. Let me encourage you. Often I do that. It's been several weeks, so I want to make sure that I remind you to be in the Word each day. The Holy Spirit has one will, and you can know what it is as you dig into the Word each day, and we can be unified together as a church to know what that is. Uh, last time together, we introduced a new chapter. I'd like to start this way. It's by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, I read a part of his, uh, a, a quote by him a number of weeks ago that said, uh, people uh, who are too heavenly minded are no earthly good, which I show to be false. Because Paul tells us to be heavenly minded, which makes us uh, earthly good. But I wanted to, to uh, give you another one by him, which I, really, I, I love him and I love how he, how he phrases things together. But I think that you'll see how it connects. I saw him once before as he passed by the door and again, the pavement stones resound as he totters o'er the ground with his cane. They say that in his prime, ere the pruning knife of time cut him down, not a better man was found by the crier on his round through the town. But now he walks the streets and looks at all he meets, sad and wan, and he shakes his feeble head that it seems as if he said they are gone. The mossy marbles rest on lips that he has pressed in their bloom, and the names he loved to hear have been carved for many a year on the tomb. My grandmama has said, poor old lady, she's dead long ago, that he had a Roman nose and his cheek was like a rose in the snow, but now his nose is thin and it rests upon his chin like a staff and a crook is in his back and a melancholy crack in his laugh. I know it is a sin for me to sit and grin at him here, but the old three-cornered hat and the breeches and all that 
are so queer. And if I should live to be the last leaf upon the tree in the spring, let them smile as I do now at the old forsaken bough where I cling. If you've read that poem before, The Last Leaf, you know that he's talking about someone who has lived beyond those who he was, uh, uh, that he was acquainted with all of his life. Those that uh, were his peers have gone on and he continues. And this is uh, perhaps the way that we'll go. Uh, perhaps we'll have long life. The Lord will give us long life. Uh, perhaps not. But this is uh, the topic as Paul comes into this passage that we're dealing with today has uh, much to do with that. And uh, last time that we started a couple of weeks ago before uh, we commissioned Eli and Jess, uh, we didn't get much past verse 1. We probably won't get past the first several verses today. But as we open up our look at this remarkable passage, where quite simply in our last stop we saw the background from Paul, uh, this tent maker, is calling the minds of the church to something very close to his heart as he exudes confidence in the future, a bright outlook, perhaps much brighter than Oliver Wendell Holmes' outlook in this first stop uh, through something as disruptive as death. So he's going to give us some confidence. We're going to go through some different points, confidence in in judgment and confidence in our job and all those kinds of things. But I want to start here where Paul does, uh, confidence in death. I'd like you to look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It's on the screen there, and we'll just catch up to where we were from last time. For we know, he says, that if, our, if the earthly tent, which is our home, or our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we noted as we read that, that Paul is talking about the resurrection. Now, today we're going to touch on a few things that prompted some questions from last time. Uh, in fact, a number of them. And it's been a long time since we've looked at some of these things. And so I hope that the refreshing will be good for you and to kind of firm up in your mind some of the process here and know them in a more complete way. The passage deals with a number of options that could be available. Uh, So Paul says this, he says, for we know that, and this is important, if, and we looked at that last time, but we kind of dealt with the reality of the house being torn down, but I want to draw attention to this this, uh, word. He says that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, now we read that and we think, what do you mean if? And that's kind of how we went last time. The last time we were together, we, uh, we kind of implied that if was certain. But I don't think, and I think, it's, I think that's what prompted some of the questions, because if is not always certain. And, uh, but if you look at that and you say, if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, and some of you look at yourselves and you think, what do you mean if? It would be better to just say when, right? Uh, when this earthly tent is torn down. Uh, isn't death inevitable? Isn't it going to happen? Isn't it appointed to men once to die and all of that? And so we know all those verses. Uh, so why does Paul use the word if? Well, as we saw in the last chapter, Paul really is in the midst and was in the midst of, of imminent, the imminent reality of his own death. Probably more so than most of us, I would say. Paul said he cares about daily the dying of the body of Jesus Christ and the death sentence is on him. So uh, we, probably most of us would not have that, wouldn't say that, but um, uh, Paul carried that around. And so there was always, though, this lingering hope that he wouldn't die, that Paul perhaps would come through and wouldn't die. And hopefully you understand that, that he hoped he would live until the return of Jesus. And we're going to look at that possibility because that's what really prompted all of the questions from last time because we only dealt with the reality of death and and then uh, that transformation. So I want to fill in some of the gaps here today so you know where I'm going then. And and we'll look at that uh, possibility in a moment because it's intricately connected with our passage. So I think we can say that he uses the word if and not when because 
he really doesn't know if he will die or if you will because he pulls us in when he says we. So he says, for we know that if, and so you get pulled into that question as well. Now, last time we talked about the when of the sentence, and we're going to get back to that, but I think we can deduce from the statement of potential if, and we looked at that last time, if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, that he believed in an imminent return. So he understood that it was a possibility that it wouldn't be when, but it would be if. He may not actually die on earth. He's looking for an imminent return. He could have said whatever he wanted as the Holy Spirit carried him along to communicate to us what we needed to know. But he used this word, and I think he believed it was possible that Jesus had come in his lifetime, or he wouldn't have said if. And it also seems, from studying the writings of Paul, that he has a preference list. And so I'm going to list that for you, this preference list, and you can see that on the screen there. First preference for Paul, I think we could say uh, fairly assuredly, is he would say, I would like to live until Jesus comes. So the rapture for Paul, uh, the sooner the better, perhaps that's the option all of us would opt into first preference, right? We would all opt into, I'd like to live until uh, Christ uh, comes and catches the church away. Paul's second preference seems to be death. And that perhaps is very odd to us, but we looked at that last time. So second preference is death. So in other words, Paul would likely say, if I can't be alive until the rapture, then I prefer to die. Then the sooner the better because I want to be with Jesus. And we've looked at a number of passages that helped us understand that. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 23 is one of those. So he says in Philippians 1, 23, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. In other words, I have a draw from both sides. So I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on, the, on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul could say, you know, if I can't be alive until the rapture, then I prefer to die because that's far, that's far better. And, uh, and the sooner that can happen, the better, because I want to be with Jesus. And then just obviously, Paul's third preference would be, uh, I, I have to live. That's the third one for him. So in other words, Paul would say, you know, I'm fine with finishing out my race uh, and, and with martyrdom so that I can be with the Lord. But if, if I will be content to live for your sake. So that'd be the third one. Now, I put those there for you so that you can understand kind of Paul's mentality as he... Uh, as he kind of goes through and, and, and teaches both churches uh, kind of where he is and perhaps where they should be in their thinking. But as a private footnote to you, and, and as I read those passages earlier this week, it, it occurred to me perhaps I need to make sure that my priorities are similar. Here, here's the deal. How do you, how do you prioritize those three things? You know, do you long to live until the rapture and the sooner the better? Do you look forward to that and the sooner it can come the better? Or... Uh, would you say, I want to live a long life? Or perhaps you would reverse the last two of Paul. Perhaps you wouldn't say, if I can't be alive until the rapture, I'd prefer to die. And just switch those last two and say, I want to live. And then the last one, or if I die, I'll be with Christ. So I, I think it's interesting to to propose those things to yourself and perhaps understand um, why you would make those statements and maybe it'd be mixed up a little bit because we love the world a little too much and I propose that to you too I want to live a really long life and you're not really concerned about uh, the rapture coming as soon as it can but I think most of us can relate to Paul with his first preference I mean if you put that all aside I'd like you to think about it and we've given you some room on your notes to kind of uh, mix that up in your own mind and put it down as perhaps you either should have it or would like to have it and maybe that's not where you are now, but I think most of us would just uh, understand that 
that we would connect with Paul in his first preference. He wanted to live until Jesus came. He was looking forward to that. He, he wanted Jesus to catch him away. And, and, and that takes in, in, into some doctrine that really prompted a number of questions last time because we dealt with death. Now, there, there's this great parallel passage from 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to use these because these help to clarify uh, some of the assumed knowledge that Paul is bringing in here in our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit in, in verse 50 to say this. Now, I say this, he says, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, that's a, a marvelous passage, one that is used often at funerals. I've used it hundreds of times myself, and it, it is one of those things that you understand is uh, a part and parcel of being human. But Paul makes this clear. He says, listen, and that understand, helps us understand this tent imagery that we see in Second in Corinthians chapter 5. And understand later the clothing imagery uh, that Paul's going to use in our passage. Paul says, I, now I say this, literally, this I affirm to you. And it just draws attention to this most important principle that God wants you to know some things about your future resurrection. And we looked at some of those last week, and we're going to fill in all the gaps, I hope, this week as you kind of track along with me. If you weren't here last week, you'll probably need to go back and check in with that message so that you can get the whole package but uh, we looked at some of these things last week. In verse 50, the Holy Spirit starts with this principle, number one. This, this thing that helps you have a secure uh, understanding of your future in death. And it, that, and it is this. There is a transformation coming. This is sure for you. A transformation is coming. And this adds really to our confidence for the future, our confidence in death. Uh, we were able to understand that last week. Believers can't live in the eternal state in this present body. So flesh and blood, this temporary tent. And that should prompt us to hold on to this flesh a little less tightly than we do you can't get there from here it's not possible for you to do that and that's helpful i think paul knew this so whether we go in the rapture or we die here and this tent is torn down as paul's imagery in second corinthians 5 tells us there's something else for us now um in verse 49 he says uh just as we have borne the image of the earthly we will also bear the image of the heavenly now this is verse 49. So he sets this, it sets 50 up with this statement. Just as we have borne the image of, of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the, of the heavenly. And then he says, now I say this, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit from perishable. So he's just talking about being human. And then he says what being human in this sense uh, keeps you from being uh, able to what? Being able to inherit the kingdom of God. So is, being human, flesh and blood cannot Inherit the kingdom of God that keeps you from uh, bearing the image of the earthly, keeps you from inheriting the kingdom of God. So that's what stops the inheritance, okay? That what you currently dwell in uh, keeps you from inheriting this kingdom. Now, in our passage of verse 1, the place where we are, uh, where there's this new home, we find its address eternal in the heavens. So, very consistent imagery here. The idea of the kingdom of God here is not the kingdom of God in its universal sense through the whole universe, the rule of God. It's not that, okay? We're, you're going to inherit a kingdom, but it's not this universal sense of the kingdom of God, the rule of God. It's not the kingdom of God reigning in the heart. That's not what you're going to inherit, okay? Uh, that, those words are used to refer to those, that, that, type, that kingdom, uh, the imagery of God, uh, the kingdom of God in the universal sense, the imagery of God reigning in the heart. But that's not what he's talking about here. It's not the kingdom of God reigning in the heart. It, it is the kingdom of God from verse 24, the final state where Jesus has subjected everything. Jesus has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Jesus has put all enemies under his feet. And then he hands over the kingdom, and you have an inheritance in that. That's the kingdom of God he's talking about here, okay? 
So Jesus is going to take care of abolish all the rule and authority and all that kind of stuff. And you have this inheritance. So the inheritance is this eternal state, this kingdom delivered to the father, reserved for all who believe this is your inheritance and and believers can't get to that kingdom without a transformation. So that's Paul's, that's Paul wants to clear that up. Okay. So he just confirms the classification of what we have now when he said, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So uh, neither does from our passage, does the tent get packed up and reset up in the heavenly address. Okay, so he's using same types of same types of understanding, same types of imagery, uh, a, pr- a prompting to not hold on too tightly to what you have here. This is a temporary dwelling; it's perishable. It's not going to inherit the kingdom. In Second Corinthians five, it is uh, a tent, and it's going to get torn down. It doesn't get moved to another location. And First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse forty-two, really clarifies that for us. He says, "So also is." The resurrection of the dead, it's also sown in peri- it's sown perishable body, it's raised in imperishable body. So the words perishable and imperishable and the, con- uh, the combination of flesh and blood seem to indicate that neither, catch this, mark this, beloved, neither the living nor the dead at the coming of Christ will go into the kingdom as they are. Both have to be transformed. And your transformed body will not include flesh and blood as we know it now. Okay? So, Paul says this, verse 51, he says, Behold... I tell you a mystery, we'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. Now, that's, that's an interesting change in the passage, okay? Paul's been talking about, uh, you know, flesh and blood can't inherit it, the perishable can't inherit it. There's a kingdom that is going to be part of your inheritance. It's not just the kingdom of God in general. It's not the kingdom of God in the heart. It's an actual kingdom that Jesus brings into subjection, hands over to the Father, and you have an inheritance there. And then he says this, guess what? And, and when you die, you get that. We, are, we understand that. And every, every believer who's reading uh, these passages understand when you die, your security is Christ was raised, you'll be raised. But then Paul says this, catch this, okay? He says, listen, I'm going to tell you something as a mystery that was something that was hidden, but now is made clear we're not all going to sleep. So Paul's calling attention to something he's about to reveal. And it aligns perfectly with what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.1. It appears that's Paul's first priority. Do you see? If this tent, which is our body, is torn down, if it is, uh, instead of when it is, if it is, so Paul's looking forward to perhaps this, We'll not all sleep. And that's Paul's first priority, to be alive when Christ comes back. So Paul says, I want to let you in on something that the Spirit has revealed to me. We're not all going to die. And that's principle number two for confidence in the future. Not everybody's going to die. And it appears that Paul hopes to be in that group. Now remember, in, uh, in uh, verses 42 and 43, he's speaking of the human body. He says this. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sowed sown in a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Now, about a month ago, we looked at that passage, and just to remind you, Paul's just making some clarification about what the old one is like and what the new one's like, okay? Uh, it's the old one's perishable, the new one's imperishable, the old one is full of dishonor, there isn't a time where you, where you live up completely to your own standards, let alone the ones that the Lord has set for us. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, we never fail to, to uh, fail, and when we fail, we show that weakness. We're, we're subject to all kinds of the forces that are here on the earth, but it's, it's sown that way and raised in power. It's sown a natural body suited for the natural, and it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Just as sure as you have this fleshly body walking around, you will have a spiritual one. So it's a spiritual body, not just a spirit, okay? Not just a spirit. So keep this in mind. If the earthly tent is torn down, you die. 
We understand, as we saw uh, from last week, from the story of the rich man and Lazarus, even though he'd not received his resurrection body yet, what? He had a spiritual body. Okay? And there's where the questions start popping up when, uh, after last week's message. He had a spiritual body. He hadn't seen the resurrection of his natural body yet. He'd just been absent from the body, and then he was present with the Lord, and he had a spiritual body. And one of the things we saw, one of the characteristics, without going through that again, was that he was what? Recognizable. And so was the rich man. Lazarus and the rich man were both recognizable. Even though they hadn't received their, their permanent resurrected body yet, they were still recognizable. And were doing some functions like sitting and drinking and eating and those kinds of things. Or being in torment. So, the, so there's a tremendous transformation that has to take place. And, and we have seen Paul compare the mechanics of, and form of this resurrection to the planting of a seed. And so, like a seed that goes in the ground, when, when, so when you die, as it were, and you go into the ground, out of the breakdown and the corruption and the seed that was your earthly body springs this new body coming up out of the grave. And that's the idea uh, when Paul says, if this tent, which is our fleshly body, is torn down. That's the idea. It is planted, okay? That's the same kind of imagery here Paul's trying to help us understand. And then it breaks down, and then the, the, your earthly body from there springs a new body coming out of the grave. Now, that's what everyone understands up until this point to be the resurrection. And that's true. That's precisely what it is. But this mystery he's revealing is this. Not everyone's going to die before they're transformed. That's why Paul uses the word if. If this tent, which is our earthly body, is torn down. Because perhaps it won't be. Perhaps you won't die here on earth. And, that's, and of course, that's, that's that option that Paul wants in. And everyone also would like to opt into it, right? So he says this. We will not all sleep. And now we've seen that word sleep is simply euphemistic for dying. And Paul includes himself in the group we. When he says we, he means we believers, Christians alive at that day. Some, he says, will not die. So uh, he's answering the question that comes up as we think this through. Obviously, Christ is going to wrap up everything, hand over the kingdom. And at that point, lots of believers are going to be alive. So what happens to Christians who don't get into the ground? Well, they'll be changed. They'll be transformed too. That's because there's no way to dwell in, in the incorruptible, immortal kingdom of God in a mortal, corruptible body. So according to Paul, some of us will go into the ground and be changed at the moment. We'll come out of the grave, and some of us will be changed on the way up. Okay? Now, just kind of building some foundational blocks. I'm going to fill all of that in uh, with a lot of concrete and make a, a good pad to stand on. Okay? But just, so just stick with me. We'll kind of put this together. We've gone through this, but it's been many, many years ago. And so I want to kind of pull it in because Paul's assuming this knowledge I'm assuming the knowledge too, and, I, and because of the questions, I figured if, if I got three or four questions, there are probably more, so I want to make sure we cover this. And then if you still have questions at the end of, of this time, you know, uh, email them to me, and I'll make sure that we cover them next time we're together. So Paul's making, uh, the points Paul's making here is that whatever group you're with, whether we are among uh, the number or whether we die before that day, we will be changed. That's Paul's point, not to worry. So the body won't be destroyed or abandoned. It'll be transformed. And as we said before, this, th- there is your identity wrapped up in all of that. And as a footnote, I think it's important to remember uh, that this teaching really balances Paul's assurances to the church in Thessalonica too. So it's the same type of teaching he's given to all the churches. He's making sure they all understand this whole process. Okay? So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we'll look there, and I'll just make some comments. We won't break it down extensively. Perhaps we'll go there when we finish uh, 2 Corinthians. But... Here's the deal. Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, but, if we do not, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. So I want to make sure Paul says that you know this. 
Okay, I've told this to other churches. I'm going to tell you, I don't want you to be ignorant of the, of the facts of what's going to go on uh, concerning the resurrection. Okay, so uh, he says, I don't want you, uh, but I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, <clears throat> about those who are asleep, so that you'll not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So what's the question? What, what's the implied question? Well, here we are waiting for Christ's ter- return. So they're at the church in Thessalonica. We're waiting for Christ's return. We know he's going to come back. But people have already died. So what about them? That's the question, right? If they've already died and Christ hasn't come back yet, what's going to happen to them? That's the question. That's always our question, isn't it? I mean, that's the question everybody in the entire world asks. So when you die, what's going to happen? But here in specific, the brethren in Christ are asking, so we're waiting for Christ's return. Now these people have passed away. What's, what's going to happen to them? So Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Again, euphemistic of dying, right? So that you'll not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So you're not going to be like the world. These people passed away. You're not grieving like the world does. Why? Because there's some specifics here that you need to know. And so, uh, again, here, Paul is just using different words, but he's revealing this new information to the church. In verse 14, he says this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that's very, very basic, right, to Christianity, because Jesus' death and resurrection provided the escape from sin. So if we believe that, so that's our common belief and, and, and imperative for salvation that you have to understand. Jesus died and rose on your behalf for your sin. And to, incorpor- to be saved, you have to incorporate that payment uh, by, uh, by believing, confessing and believing in repentance. So for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So you don't grieve as those with no hope. This is what's going to happen, okay? Paul assures his readers that those who die before Christ comes uh, will be at no disadvantage because they will rise, as we've seen in our passage this morning, and be transformed first. So 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, Paul's addressing the living. They see Paul's words. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. And they could wonder, so how can we who are alive at his coming enter the kingdom? So he deals with both things in 1 Thessalonians. He says, listen, if, you al- or if you're alive when Christ comes, you'll be transformed into your new body, but you won't precede those who are dead who were in Christ when he comes because they'll go first to be transformed into their new eternal body. Now, you know, that doesn't preclude anything else we've said. There, if they die, if you're absent from the body now, where are you? You're present with the Lord. Just like Lazarus, you have a spiritual body. People can recognize you and you're waiting for this resurrection, okay? And that's where most of the questions came last time. You're waiting for the resurrection, but you're still with the Lord, your body is still in the grave, but it's going to be raised. So when the Lord comes back to the rapture, it, Paul just says, listen, don't, don't worry about these folks who have died. They're going, to cat, they're going to be caught away first. They're going to get their new body before you will, and you'll be translated on the way up. And so that's an important point. Paul wants to make sure nobody's at a disadvantage, and, and you've you got both questions going there. So we're still here. How do we, I mean, if we're alive when Christ comes back, we can't go into the kingdom in this corruptible body. Right, Paul says, you'll be changed. And if someone's already in the ground and it's, you know, we just see the, we just see the advanced uh, decay, which is actually going on right now, but we just can see the final product, they're going to go first and get their new body. So don't worry, be encouraged, comfort one another with these words. So Paul assures both 
churches, and all three, really, because now we've taken in three, that there is a unity and a uniformity and identity for all who are in Christ in his coming, regardless of whether in the grave or still living. So Paul says, if this tent, which is our earthly body, is torn down, it, it, what's going to happen? We have a home in heaven. We're going to see in just a couple passages from there that we're going to see, you know, I'm going to be absent from the body and I'm going to be present with the Lord, okay? And if it isn't torn down, if Christ comes back, then we'll be translated out of this old uh, perishable body into the perfect body for, that, that is created for heaven. But we won't go before those who are in Christ who have already been put in the grave. So that's, that's very encouraging, right? If you have a spouse, if you have a loved one, if you have, if you have a mother or a father and they were believers and they're in the grave, they're going to get their, their, their per- permanent body before you will, okay? Now, it's all going to be really fast, but they will actually come in first, okay? So Paul tells this whole new thing they didn't know before, and it's really exciting, and he, and he says it in a number of different ways, in a number of different passages, and, and, and we teach this for Thessalonians passages, speaking of a catching away of those who are Christ's called the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52 help support that very unique, important New Testament passage. And there's going to be a rapture, there, and there are good illustrations of that in the lives of Enoch and of Elijah. You know, they were called up to heaven. They were obviously changed on the way up for the same reason that you have to be changed, right? Because they have an earthly, uh, uh, perishable, corruptible body, but they can't be in the presence of the Lord with that earthly, perishable, corruptible body. So they're changed on the way up, just like you will be. And there are many examples of Jesus calling people from decay back to life on earth. So they didn't have to be changed, right? Because they're still living in their earthly tent on earth. They just get that restored to life. So we see Jesus do that. So there are, there are just kinds of introductory examples of the power the Lord has. I am the resurrection and the life, Right? And so it's not in a day, it's not in some future thing. Jesus is that. He can do as he wishes and give life to who he pleases. So we see some, we see some illustrations of that all through the scriptures. So they're kind of introductory examples. And, and these believers are not being transformed out of the grave to judgment. They're being transformed out of the grave and transformed from walking around in life to being with the Lord. If our earthly tent this, uh, is, is torn down, Paul says, but if it's not, we'll be translated into life. Okay? Jesus isn't coming for judgment right there. He's coming to translate those who are in the church into their heavenly form. So, and they're going to be transformed out of the grave, transformed from walking around in life to be with the Lord. They're part of this first resurrection. The catching away of the church is part of this mystery of transformation that's now been revealed. Okay? We're not all going to sleep. Not everybody's going to be dead when Christ comes back. And then verse 52 helps with that understanding. So he says this. He says, how will it happen? It's going to be in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So here's our next principle, principle number three, if you're keeping track, that it helps you have sure, very sure confidence for the future, is this, the transformation from corruptible to incorruptible is instant. So the change is not a long, drawn-out affair. The resurrection of the dead might be likened to planting of a seed, but that's where the illustration falls short, because unlike uh, the seed where the germination process could take weeks or, or, or a number of months, the transformation of the living and the dead will take place in a moment. That is the Greek adjective atomos. That's where we get our word atom. That's, uh, the intent is really to communicate an indivisible amount of time, a very short amount of time. I like the use of the word, our use of the word, which just communicates the smallest constituent unit of, a, of ordinary matter. This word here in the Greek just means there's no smaller amount of time. This is the smallest amount of time that you could clock, okay? And the Holy Spirit's desire is to indicate that the transformation of Adam's race into Christ's likeness will take a lot less time than, mark this, the original forming of Adam from the earth, okay? 
Jesus took the earth and formed it into Adam and breathed life into him, it's going to take a lot less time than that. In fact, he says, in the twinkling, hripe is the Greek noun. It has to do with sudden motion, uh, the twinkling of an eye, ophthalmos. That's where uh, ophthalmology, we would get our word, the study of the, the, the uh, biology of the eye. But here, it's this flash of light off someone's eye. That's the idea. Hripe has, is used to refer to a drumbeat. So as fast as a drumbeat, as flash, as fast as a flash of light off someone's eye, that's how quickly the transformation can occur. So you get the idea. This is serious speed. So in other words, it's going to be so fast you won't realize it. And then people say, well, so when, when is this going to take place? Well, he gives, some, he gives some encouraging words there. He says, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Now that's important, right? Put some number four. The transformation will occur at a trumpet call. So this is what Paul hopes for. This is his first priority. He would like to hear that trumpet call. He'd prefer that to his earthly tent being torn down, but he would prefer that, the earthly tent being torn down, and sooner the better than having to live, but he will stay and live for the sake of the church. So there's his preferences again. Paul's looking forward to uh, this marvelous thing that's going to occur, and that's Paul's first priority. So Trumpets are used for all kinds of things in the Old Testament. We won't go into all that. We have uh, numerous times in the past. Just to say that when you read this, don't automatically assume this is the last trumpet forever. Amen. Because the scriptures don't express it like that. What what the scripture says is, and what we know is there will be at least seven more trumpets during the tribulation time. So obviously this is not the last one forever. Okay? It's a... There's a big one at the end, and when you, and when you see the word last, that's the Greek, word, Greek adjective eschatos, and you understand that because we study eschatology, which is the study of the last things, and this trumpet is marking the last of things as we know them. That's how you can understand this. So the idea is last among events on earth and the coming of the new kingdom. It is the trumpet that obviously ends the struggle with death for the believer, and it certainly seems to be the trumpet that ends the church age, and we'll just look at that just briefly. So Just as a footnote, trumpets in the Old Testament frequently used at times of festivity and times of triumph. Uh, There are a number of of, uh, 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 festivals that the Lord commanded his people to to carry on, and they were marked by trumpets. And we know that the Lord has fulfilled those completely, uh, some of those trumpets. They were for feast days for Israel, but they've become permanently fulfilled for other things when Christ came the first time. So we fully expect that the rest of the trumpets that remain unfulfilled will mark some of these things we're talking about. And I I firmly believe the Lord doesn't do anything by accident, that he sets these things up with Israel for him to be fulfilled with Christ, both in his first advent and his second. So we can imagine that the coming of Christ and the catching away of the church would occur on a trumpet day. And so you can just, as we still don't know the day of the hour, it's not possible for us to determine that, but I would say that that's, that's a, a likely scenario. Now, um, in, in the trumpets in the Old Testament, as, we, as I said, frequently used uh, at times of festivity, at times of triumph, both of those ideas are in play here. Uh, sometimes trumpets were used to assemble people before God, Exodus 19, and Moses on the mountain assembling the people for the reading of the Ten Commandments. I just read that in my own quiet time. You also have the trumpet of the, or the shofar, used in summoning God's people to the feast and to be held before him. And I think that's the idea that's in play here with Paul. But the idea here is, from Paul, that someday all that are in the graves are going to hear that trumpet and they're going to come out and be joined with those who are, who, who are, whose bodies are going to be transformed on the way up and that's all part of that first resurrection. 
And, and just for clarification, because there's no judgment associated with this trumpet and the resurrection, this appears to be a different resurrection transformation and a different appearing of Christ than the passages that speak of Christ coming down to Jerusalem and every eye seeing him and, and all of those kinds of things, and they mourn over him and, and judgment comes while he's there. So it's a different, t- this different coming, a different trumpet than that last one, the glorious appearing and all of those things. So Revelation 1-7 tells us this, Behold, he's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and the tribes of earth will mourn over him. So it is to be a man. This appears to be a different coming than the one we're talking about. Matthew 24-15 speaks of this tribulation time on earth right before this coming of Christ in the glorious appearing. And, and in Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 26 through 31, it says this, and you can see some of the same in- imagery. You understand what's going to happen here. So if they say to you, this is during the tribulation time, if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he's in the inner room, do not believe them. Why? Well, Jesus has caught away the church. So he isn't on earth right now, is he? This is the time of the tribulation. And these things are caused, brought on the earth to bring people to salvation, and millions will come. And if you were with us in our, in our uh, verse-by-verse study in Revelation, you understand that very, very thoroughly. So, Matthew says this, as Jesus is speaking, he's, he's relaying what Jesus has taught his disciples. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, if he's in the inner room, do not believe them because he's caught away the church. He isn't on earth at this time, but when he comes, it'll be obvious. And that's, what, and that's exactly what Jesus says. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So he's coming at the end of an awful time on earth where there's going to be a lot of death and a lot of judgment, and there's going to be more when he shows up. And so we've studied this before, so we won't go into this tribulation period again. But then Matthew says in verse 29, But immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be uh, shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Then catch this, and then he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. So before we just had a trumpet, now we have a great trumpet. Uh, and this is described as in that way as opposed to the other one. And it will gather people to God, uh, gather people to God as well, and, and described as uh, the fulfillment of this day, as the day of atonement perhaps. Perhaps this is a fulfillment of that. Jesus is going to save Israel on this day. So perhaps that's, that's fulfillment. So Jesus is going to, ha- there's going to be this huge trumpet, this great trumpet. He's going to gather people together. And they will gather, it says, together, his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So Jesus is going to gather all of his elect, Okay. Not just those in the church age, not just those who fall asleep and those who are waiting for his return, but all of the elect, okay? So mark this, those who have been transformed already, okay, that's the church, those that were alive when he came, those who were in the grave when he came, but part of the church age waiting for his coming, we've already looked at that, and are with him from the previous trumpet at the end of the church age, they're with him already, and the elect who are among those still alive at the end of the tribulation, because there'll be millions of those people, Right? We looked at that at the end of the tribulation after the preaching of the 144,000, though two witnesses, there will be millions upon millions upon millions come to faith. So he's going to gather all those folks too, right? And the elect of the Old Testament, which we haven't even talked about those yet, right? Because the rapture had to do with those of the church age and those both alive and who were in the grave. So he's going to gather all the elect. So all those who have been transformed already. And are with them from the previous trumpet blast at the end of the church age. And the elect who are among those who are alive at the end of the tribulation. And the elect of the Old Testament whose bodies are still in the grave like we studied before. And the elect uh, who were martyred during the tribulation. All of those, okay. You're all part of that first resurrection. Now just as a footnote, when we refer to this first resurrection, 
We're referring to what the scriptures refer to as the resurrection of the just. The resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the justified, the resurrection of life, of the church, tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, all first resurrection, okay? They just get their bodies at different times because that's what it's all about, right? The resurrection is about getting this permanent glorified body. There's also, and we won't look at this today, but there's also a second resurrection. And this is the one you don't want to be a part of. It's what scripture refers to, the resurrection of the damned. The great white throne judgment, resurrection to death. That's the second death. So two resurrections, one that are going to occur for all the elect. Those have been transformed already, with them from the previous blast at the end of the church age. The elect who are among all those alive at the end of the tribulation. The elect of the Old Testament, whose bodies are still in the grave. The elect of all who were slain in faith during the tribulation period. They're all part of the first resurrection. Just getting their bodies at different times. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the damned. Those are all the unredeemed. Their, Their bodies are still... Their physical bodies are still in the grave decaying, and their spiritual body is in hell waiting for judgment. We've talked about that many times. If you've been here, you know this. First death was physical, separation from the living to hell. Second death will be physical and spiritual separation from the living and separation from the Lord forever in the lake of fire with a body that will never decay. Just like the redeemed will receive a body that will never decay and prepared for the glories that God has prepared for them, so will the unredeemed receive a body that will never decay, prepared for punishment forever in the lake of fire. Okay? All the graves of the unredeemed are going to be opened. They're all going to receive their body prepared for eternity, but it's an eternity of torment. And that's the beginning of what we see in the glorious appearing of Christ. So we're at the end of the tribulation church was taken out before it began many millions have come to faith during the seven years of tribulation and now matthew 25 31 says but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he'll sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him he'll separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats they put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left jesus comes back he separates those who have come to faith during the tribulation from those that have not so we're going to differentiate then between what we read in second corinthians chapter five and the if and what we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from the return of Christ here, which has to do with judgment and separating and throwing people into hell and all that. We don't see any of that in those previous ones. And so when they, the, the Thessalonians come and say, what's going to happen? I mean, we're waiting for Christ to return and some people already died and they were in the faith. What's going to happen to them? He goes, don't worry. Okay, Christ is going to come with a shout and the trump, and he's going to raise those who are already in the grave and give them their glorious body, and he's going to raise you and translate you on the way up. So don't worry about that. And Paul's hoping he'll be in that second category. He won't die first, that Christ will come. It has nothing to do with judgment. It has everything to do with catching the church away and preserving them from judgment. So he comes back, and he separates all that, and we see all of that, okay? So on the one hand, you have Paul talking about the first part of the first resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And again, in John 14, don't let your heart be troubled, he says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. So again, we just have this marvelous doctrine in the New Testament that's just confirmed in a number of different places. And you have to read carefully because you can just kind of lump the whole thing together, which is a mistake. So, again. So on the one hand, you have... Paul talking about the first part of the first resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, Thessalonians 4. On the other hand, you have the glorious return of Christ, and this doesn't appear to be the subject of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians 15. 
It's not the glorious appearing of Christ. It's the catching away of the church because there's so many stark differences between the two. It appears to be Jesus catching away those that are his. This is what Paul's referring to as a possibility in, in our current passage. If this earthly tent is torn down, there's a chance for another option, and that's Paul's first choice, to be caught away with the Lord. So this is the beginning of the wrapping up of all things. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, and this is very important, verse 8 and t- through 10, he says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. You have got a marvelous testimony, he says. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, catch this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, that is Jesus, very important differentiation, who rescues us from the wrath to what? Come. Very important differentiation, okay? And that was where some of the questions lied last time as well. Is So when does this occur and... and how do we know that it's not the it's not the glorious appearing of Christ? There are a number of there are a number of clues. You have to be you have to be able to discern them. Okay, you pull out those passages. What passages speak of the catching away of the church that don't have any judgment connected to with them? What passages speak with the glorious return of Christ that have judgment connected to them? And you differentiate those, and you understand why Paul is hoping for this, and why the Thessalonians, Thessalonians are what they they understand what Jesus has done, and that they are waiting to, for Him to rescue them from the wrath to come. And what is the tribulation if it is anything? By Scripture's own definition, over and over again, what is the tribulation, if it's anything? It is the wrath of God poured out on men. Is it not? Of course it is. It's said over and over again that's what it is. So if we're going to be rescued from the wrath, what does that mean? That means we're looking forward to a catching away before the wrath comes, right? Okay, so these passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, John 14, 1 through 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, they all seem to cover the same event beginning of the first resurrection, and they cover both sides of the question. If you're dead, don't worry. You're going to come out of the grave with a transformed body, but while you're waiting, you are with the Lord with a temporary spiritual body, and we'll see that in our current passage. And if you're alive, you just get changed on the way up, and both changes are instantaneous, and that's Paul's first choice before the earthly tent is torn down. Now back to our parallel passage, verse 52. He says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, those still alive in Paul's audience then and now, and we will be, he says, changed. So Paul says, let me let you in on a secret never revealed before. A whole generation of believers who who will still be alive at the time of the resurrection in their natural bodies will be taken up in an instant, transformed into a glorious body without ever dying. And that's a pretty sweet surprise for everybody because everybody always thought, well, we're going to die and then we'll, we'll be in the resurrection. That's Jesus and the woman at the well. Remember, that's precisely what she said. And uh, it's, it's uh, precisely what um, uh, uh, Mary said, right, to Jesus. Yes, I know we're, we're at the last resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. There's, there's a whole thing coming I need to re- remind you of that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this when I wish. It's a pretty sweet surprise for those who are in Christ. Now, verse 53 says this, and Paul begins to sum up his encouragement for confidence in the future. He says this, for this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. And they are really parallel to his statement in our current passage where he says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, and you can look there if you still have your Bible open, verse 6, he says, therefore, being always of good courage, why am I go- of good courage? knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we, are, we walk by faith and not by sight. 
We are of good courage. Why, Paul? I say, and rather prefer, mark this, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So we understand, Paul says, this is the final result. We're going we're to put on immortality, and we're always of good courage. And we can apply death, that to death or to the rapture, either with a temporary body or a resurrected one. We have this wonderful confidence. So let's break it down to its basic parts and see what, it, what, what, it, what the Lord wants us to understand, what's going to happen in the shortest imaginable amount of time. Verse 53, he says this. It says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Perishable, uh, thartos, that's the adjective thartos, that which is defiled. That's the tent that we've been talking about, okay? Paul's idea here is for the believer to think of their life now. It's clothed in a filthy set of clothes. And we're going to see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, exactly those words. He's going to say, for indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened. And here it is, he switches his illustrations, he says, because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So the, exactly the same imagery, you're going to be clothed with a new set of clothes. It's a set of clothes you could never take off yourself. It's a tent that you could never relocate uh, it, without the Lord doing it. it, it is a, it's a real you ready for heaven, clothed with corruption. And the nouns implied in this adjective. See, Paul's been talking about a bodily resurrection from the beginning of the section. So he's talking about the body now. See? We're in this tent we groan. The perishable body is going to be imperishable body. See? So we look forward to that. And he says that we must put this on. He's talking about the body now. It's all that's corrupted. It will be transformed from death to life. Uh, because death just shows an accelerated form of what's going on in life. And he says, we must put this on uh, in duo, instantaneously. That's what's filthy is going to be transformed into what is imperishable, aftharsia, no longer able to be decayed. So the transformed suit around the real you will be absolutely pure, no possibility of corruption. And this mortal, uh, natos, again, the, the, uh, the noun is supplied for the adjective, it's the word body. This mortal body, subject or liable to death, same idea in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He uses the same word. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give, also give life to your... And here they use the noun, mortal bodies through his death, through his spirit who dwells in you. There's a use of mortal. It places the emphasis on the liability for death, the importation of life at the time of the rapture. So Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three, this mortal must put on immortality. See, So no moral liability to death, just like we saw in Romans 8... Uh, not only that, but next week we're going to see death itself is going to die. And so there's this whole transformation that's going to occur. And it's, it, we wonder how Paul could have the mindset that, hey, I carry around the death sentence on me, but I'm not worried. Paul says, I, you know, I care about the marks of Christ on me, but I'm not worried. I'm of great courage. Why? Because he knows precisely what's going to happen. If he's alive when Christ comes back with the trumpet, what's going to happen? He's going to be translated into his new body. If he's in the grave, what's going to happen? He'll... He'll beat the ones who were alive when Christ returns and get translated into his new body. But regardless, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's completely confident in all of that. So he's okay with saying, I'd like to be raptured, but if I'm not going to be raptured, I just prefer to be with the Lord and the sooner the better. But if it's better for you for me to stay, then I will. So you can see how the priorities can easily get in the order that they're in when he understands what's supposed to happen. See. So, Paul brings out something of the nature of the change, singling out the cessation of the corruption and, and the mortality. And these things are totally incompatible with life in the hereafter. And they're going to be transformed in this indivisible moment 
And so resurrection transformation number five, he says this. He says, uh, transformation is like clothing the real you with the right suit. And the suit is not you. So we currently bear the image of the earthly. That's of Adam. Mark this. We currently live in a tent, a temporary dwelling place. Now we currently wear the clothing, okay, just to use all the different phrases that we've been looking at. We bear the image of the earthly, of Adam. We have incorruption on us. We have corruption on us. We live in a tent. It's a temporary dwelling place. We currently wear the clothing of the mortal and the corruption. But none of that will be true when this tent is torn down or after a moment of time on that day when the trumpet sounds and the beginning of the first resurrection will have commenced. Do you get that? So there's... And I apologize that we're really not preaching today, but teaching, and I want to make sure you understand this doctrine. It's really foundational to life. It's foundational to how to live with the priorities that Paul had, have the preferences that he had, and be okay with that. See, because it's so contrary to the life that we live today in the world around us, which is so committed to extending our physical life that they will spend, uh, our society, and perhaps us, spend hundreds of billions of dollars each year to put off what the Lord says is only a temporary dwelling place, liable for corruption, and has promised us a new body fit for the kingdom, and the kingdom will never end on a new earth that's made to the specifications that the Lord has desired, ready for you to enjoy for all of your life. So, you know, you've got to come to that solid assurance before you get to the point where, hey, this is a possibility in the very near future. Otherwise, you're just going to be just like the world and lament as if there's no hope. See? So this is super important, and I know perhaps I'm repeating myself uh, to you. If you've been here a long time, you know we've gone over this uh, through the years, and I've been here 10 years with you, so you've heard me say this a number of times. But perhaps this is new for you. But regardless, I'll refresh you again in these ideas to understand this is, the, this is the facts concerning your future. So Paul can have this very sure foundation to stand on. Now, verse 53, there's some things that are obviously true. Um, when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. And we'll focus on those last six words, and that will really bridge us to next time because we're out of time. But we've looked at the previous ones at length, but death is swallowed up in victory. And, and this is our resurrection triumph principle, number six. One day, uh, really, on the day of, of transformation, death will be proclaimed as vanquished. Death is going to be proclaimed as vanquished. And, and Paul always comes back to the Word of God to really wrap up his arguments. And, and he does it again here. And, and it's a passage from Isaiah. It's one of the most beautiful passages, I think, for me in all the scriptures with its wonderful imagery. And I want to close with it because we're out of time. But strictly the context here that we're going to be talking about is the glorious appearing of Christ. And as we've seen before, the prophets of old typically didn't differentiate between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. They just kind of blended them right in because they were just carried along by the Holy Spirit to write whatever he said. It's, it's our understanding later and future revelation that helped us understand both in, in the Gospels and the Epistles and later in Revelation helped us understand that there were some differences between the first advent of Christ and the second. And so we're able to discern perhaps where this lands but it is a future revelation that's allowed us to see the unfolding of God's plan for his people Israel and for his people the church. So Isaiah chapter 25, verse 7. I'm going to finish with this, and I think you'll be encouraged. I love, you'll love this. It's just, it's so sure for your future, a day set already, that you'll be able to enjoy, of course, as you, you've been with the Lord already um, through the tribulation time. But you're going, to, you're going to see this, and you're going to hear this, and you're going to understand it. And I hope that you understand it some today so that you can rejoice. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 7 says this, And on this mountain 
He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. So in general, we saw, beloved, and I'll just comment on this as we go through, uh, that uh, when we study this, that this is the darkness of unbelief, right? We saw this earlier, just a couple chapters ago uh, in Second Corinthians. It's the darkness of unbelief, the veil, okay? He's going to swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. That's the darkness of the veil of unbelief. Everyone uh, will know who God is. At this point, everyone will know this is the glorious appearing of Christ. There won't be any more question about, well, God doesn't really exist. I don't really believe, right? Because that's the darkness of the veil. Remember, we saw we can't remove the veil, nor can we bring anybody from darkness to life, but we can give the gospel out, and the Lord can do those things, take the veil off the eyes, right? So he's going to do this in the glorious appearing of Christ. So he's going to take the veil, which is stretched over all the nations, and he's going to swallow it up. Everyone We'll know who God is, what Christ has done, the penalty for rejecting his offer of salvation. That doesn't mean universal salvation, okay, as some have translated this. It doesn't mean that at all. Just universal understanding. But that's not the only thing he's going to swallow up. What's he say in verse 8? He will swallow up death for all time. God will swallow up what has been, what has been swallowing up, beloved, every single person that's ever lived, Okay. Death has swallowed up every single person who's ever lived and gone to the grave from the beginning of time, okay? But the Lord is going to swallow this up, see? And with just a few exceptions. Don't you love that? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that those who are part of the second resurrection won't be judged and cast to their second death, okay? It doesn't mean that they're not going to die finally forever in, in the lake of fire. It just means that the authority of death is going to be removed forever. No more temporary dominion because it's had temporary dominion over us, hasn't it? It takes away loved ones. It takes away uh, uh, long marriages. It takes away children. It takes away all kinds of stuff, doesn't it? Before we were ready. There's no more dominion over death. The Lord's going to swallow that dominion up, okay? All the authority of death is going to be removed forever. No more temporary dominion for all the redeemed, eternal life for all the unredeemed, an eternal body that can never die and be, uh, to be relieved of the torment. And then the prophet says this, And the Lord God will wipe tears away from the all faces and remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. So all who are called by his name, those who came to faith during the tribulation among all the nations, and Israel will be the head, the most exalted of all the nations instead of the tail, the one blamed for every bad thing. They'll be exalted for the Lord has spoken. So how sure is this scenario? I love it when it says, for the Lord has spoken. So he says this, and on this mountain, he'll swallow up the covering, which is over all the peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all nations. He'll swallow up death for all time, and the Lord will wipe away from all faces the tears, and he'll remove the reproach from his people from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It's pretty good, right? I mean, parents, you understand that in some respects in your dominion. When your child has done it for the last time, and you say, this is not going to happen again, dad has spoken. If you do it again, what will happen? Hopefully in your house, a spanking, okay? But this is so much more authority, right? This is precisely what's going to happen. The Lord has spoken. So how sure are we of that as a scenario? Absolutely positive. Okay? Absolutely positive. What's the contingency plan on that? No contingency plan. Okay? This is how it's going to be. And then verse 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we've waited, that he might save us. Who's going to say that? All the redeemed. Right? 
All the redeemed are going to say that. No, no one redeemed person is going to say that, right? They're going to know God exists. They're going to know Christ has done all he said he's going to, he, he, do, he was going to do. They're going to know the punishment for sin. They're going to, be, they're going to have that glorified body uh, for the redeemed. They're going to have the body made for hell for the unredeemed. And all that's going to be true. And it's going to be said in that day, Behold, by all the redeemed, this is our God whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. But he kind of wraps up all that. He swallows death and he makes life forever for everybody, forever in torment for the unredeemed, forever in glory for the redeemed. See? And we're out of time, but Lord willing, we're going to pick up here next time. But you can see, this is Paul's hope all the day long. He can confidently just stand and say, okay, I bear the, the sentence of death on my body every day. And he can say, you know, I was in Asia and I thought I was going to die. And then the Lord delivered us. But even if he hadn't delivered us, he could have raised us up again if he still wanted us to preach. Paul was, there was no waffling there. Okay, I wonder what's going to happen. And so my intent for you today was that there wouldn't be any uncertainty in your mind that I had just concentrated on the fact that we'll die. And then this is the transformation we had. Well, what happens? I mean, isn't Christ could come back? Right, right. But I didn't deal with that last time. So I want to deal with it this time. And I took in a number of other things. Okay. And if you're unsure about some of those things, come see me. We can, I can put you in, in touch with the messages where we dealt with all of that stuff. And you can, you can study to your heart's content and be uh, rejoice in all that. But Paul longs for this day. And we see it in all of his writings. And he's absolutely sure of the outcome. So he can say the same thing to every church. And that's why he had so much courage. And he was always of good courage. And he groans for this day. And we're going to look at those words next time. He hopes in it. And it provides his sure confidence for the future. Even in something so disruptive as death. Okay? And that concludes our time together. Let's bow, if you would, in prayer. And we're going to move on down to our time of fellowship. And so I hope you'll stay with us. Be a great joy for you and for us to get to know you. So plan on staying if you would. Um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful today for uh, how we can know about the future, how as we search the scriptures, we can understand it's something that was a marvelous re- uh, revelation from Paul to the church. Hey, we're not going to all sleep. So Paul says, if this body, if this tent, which is our uh, mortal body, is torn down. So because there's another option, one of them could be that we're translated out of this mortal body and into our eternal uh, form forever. But regardless, Lord, we know that if we're redeemed, to be absent from this body, as we'll see next week, is to be present with you. And what a joy that is. What a hope. But for those who don't know you, they're not redeemed. You've not come in faith, seeking the one who has taken your sin on the cross and in repentance and confession told him that you're a sinner lost, worthy of judgment. Not holding on to anything that you think is good. All of it is filthy garment, Scripture describes. Repenting of those things, confessing them to the Lord, and asking him to save you by the power of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. Believing he is Lord, he's done all that he said he was going to do. He is who he said he is. If you believe that, if you're ready to confess and repent of your sins, then do it right where you sit. Don't wait another minute. What an awful outcome for you to be caught outside of the grace of the Lord, counting on your somehow your own goodness or, or your, just your understanding of all of these facts without incorporating them in to your own heart. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and that you're a sinner and repent of that sin, turning from those things. You don't wish to do them anymore. You're, it's revolting just like the scripture says they are to you. 
call out to the Lord for salvation, he will great, graciously save. For it's not his will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. Let salvation come to your house today. If you prayed that prayer today, before you leave, do not leave without letting me know that you've prayed this prayer. Take the card in front of you in the chair, fill that out. I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior today. Or I'd like to know more about that. I'd like to, I'd like to discover more about that relationship and the payment Christ made on the cross. I've got some questions. Whatever, wherever you are in that walk, let us know. Let us help you. And Father, we thank you for all who are here and alive and remain and wait for the Lord's return. It is our great expectation and our hope that we'll be caught away. It's what all of us want to do. We want to be in that group. We want to be caught away. We want to hear the trumpet. We want to be translated out of this, uh, out of this earthly tent into our heavenly body. We long for that time. But Lord, whether you, whether you catch us away or allow us to see, uh, see the gra- our body to see the grave and, and us to be with you, uh, we have good confidence and courage. So, Father, I pray that you'll do what you do by your Holy Spirit through your word. It's encourage uh, those who need to be encouraged, convict those who need to be convicted, uh, give the correct parts to put back in on the parts that are faulty. And, Lord, just continue to do your work here. We're grateful for it. We thank you for our time of fellowship that follows immediately after this, that we might have opportunity to encourage one another, break bread together, as uh, New Testament saints have been doing uh, since you went back, that your son went back to heaven. So, Lord, we're grateful for an opportunity to do it today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Uh, Just a couple of things, and you're out.